I was in here late last night and I came in and it was pitch black. I couldn't see a thing. Um, but if I turn on the lights, I would be able to see everything. Well, in heaven, there will be no need for any kind of natural light or even artificial light because the glory of the Lamb will light it. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we have spent the past few weeks looking at the judgments that befall the earth following the rapture of the church. We noted these judgments come in three groups of seven, and we've been looking at the first group, the seal judgments. These have all taken place as a scroll is unraveled. And today we come to the breaking of the seventh seal, which begins with a half hour of absolute silence. Would you take God's word and turn to Revelation chapter eight if you are joining us for the first time. We've been working our way chapter by chapter through the Revelation. Now, most Christians believe that that section of Handel's Messiah, known as the Hallelujah Chorus, may indeed be the most powerful piece of musical comp composition ever written in the history of man. Of course, it had its premiere in Dublin, Ireland, April the 13th, 1742. But about a year later, March the 23rd, 1743, Handel, there in London, performed his great sacred oratorio. Of course, the King of England, having read the words and heard greatly of the reviews, was waiting for it with anticipation, and he invited his entire court to come. And when the Hallelujah Chorus began, King George, wanting to affirm that he was just a king, but Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, stood up. And of course, in any king in that day, if the king was standing, all must stand. And so to this day, we follow that tradition, the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, today we begin a section of Scripture that Handel's Messiah originated from. We are in Revelation chapter 8, and at the conclusion of the trumpet judgments, this statement is made, the kingdoms of this world, of course, this is sung in the Messiah, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Those are central to the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's really difficult to hear that chorus without your heart pounding in anticipation of what is yet to come. There's that point in the Hallelujah Chorus where it just stops all of a sudden. And if it's done well, the pause is so effective. And then it finishes out with the last Hallelujah. I can't help but read this section of Scripture with the trumpet judgments and realize and feel the same anticipation. In fact, many great composers of our day believe that the section that we're going to look at today in Revelation 8, where there is that pause in heaven for 30 minutes, was the inspiration for Handel's Messiah and the great pause there that, um, that, they, that, uh, that he had. Now, we're going to study the eighth chapter over the next several weeks. Today, we're just going to look at the first two verses, but they're really important 
because if you can understand the first couple of verses, it will make the rest of the chapter so much more meaningful. But so you have a flavor of where we're going, we're going to begin by reading the entire eighth chapter. So I hope you brought a Bible. Follow along, Revelation chapter 8, beginning now in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were bitter, made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened. The day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, the Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic timetable is called the rapture of the church. But after the church has been removed, a seven-year period known as the tribulation period will begin. And the tribulation period is unfolded in chapters 6 through 19. It's a graphic, gruesome picture of what is still in the future. And as you read these chapters, what you read is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that Jesus, in describing this time frame, says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Now, Jesus is truth incarnate, and no one can ever accuse him of exaggerating. It's an incredible prophecy that he makes, that when you consider all the wars, all the holocausts, all the diseases, all the famines, all the earthquakes, all the tsunamis, all the hurricanes, all the volcanic eruptions, he said you add it all together, and since the creation of man, there has never, ever been a time like this. Jeremiah the prophet in describing the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble, depending on your translation, says this in the 30th chapter, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. 
Jeremiah looks down the corridors of time. He prophesies of this great time in Israel's history yet to happen called the time of Jacob's distress or trouble when it will be so great that men will wrap their arms around their loins, people's faces will go pale because it will be an unparalleled time in human history. Michael, the archangel, said to Daniel, the prophet, we studied it in the 12th chapter of Daniel, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, speaking of the Jewish people, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So what we're studying in chapter 8 all the way through the 19th chapter is a time of unspeakable horror. It's an unprecedented time in all of human history. Now, for the benefit of those who are new and also for the edification of the rest of us, because I want you, by the time we are done with the Revelation, be able to think your way all the way through this book, because it will change your life and you will be blessed in an extraordinary way, as the opening verses tell us for those who heed it and uh, and uh, read it. So if you remember, the book opens in the first eight verses with an introduction of sorts. And we are given the theme right in the opening verses. The theme is that he is coming in the clouds. And then this is one of the few books. Turn there to Revelation chapter 1. We'll flip through a few chapters as we move into the 8th chapter. Uh, when you come to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, this is one of the few books in all the Bible where we're actually given a divine outline by God. And I suppose God wanted to give us this outline so that we could not misinterpret the great revelation that he gave. If you follow the outline, the book makes a lot more sense. In 119, it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things which will take place after these things. The things that are past, you might want to write over that, Revelation 1. That's what John records in the first chapter. He writes a vision that he had already seen of the glorified Christ. The things which are, write over those words, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. He writes of seven actual literal churches that are in existence in the first century. And if we read and understand that portion of the book, it will be a great blessing to us. There's a lot of heartache that can be avoided in life if we heed the teaching found in the seven churches of the Revelation. Then beginning in chapter 4 all the way through the 22nd chapter, we come into the after these things, the things that shall take place after these things. So after these things, write Revelation 4 through 22. Which things which will take place after these things or after the churches those events that are in the future. So we're in the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. So go, go over a couple pages to the right to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Just a few pages to the right, Revelation 4 and verse 1. Uh, you come to a structural marker letting you know there's a new section in the book. Notice how 4.1 begins. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a, of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Twice over in the same verse, so you cannot miss it, we are moving into the futuristic section of the book. And if you remember, this is a picture of the rapture. The door is opened. John is let in. The church has been caught up into heaven. 
And we will see here in verse 4 of this chapter, notice, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, I'm not going to review it, but I will just say briefly that we saw 24 is a representative number in Scripture, and these 24 elders review for us the church captured up into heaven. They are a picture of the church that has been harpazoed, caught up, raptured, as the Latin Bible renders the text. And so the church is in heaven beginning in chapter 4, and you will not see them mentioned again until you come to the 19th chapter. First, Christ comes for his saints. At the second coming, a distinctly different event, he comes back with his saints, all right? So those are important to keep those footholds. But what's really interesting, when you read of John's vision of heaven here in the fourth chapter, it is very similar to the vision that Daniel has of heaven. It's very similar to the vision Isaiah has of heaven with one exception, In either Daniel or Isaiah do you find the 24 elders, and that should be a major clue to you as the identity of who these 24 elders are. So chapter 4 ends, if you remember, with God receiving praise from the four living creatures, the cherubim that are described by the prophet uh, Ezekiel, along with the 24 elders there in heaven. Chapter 5 we're in the same courtroom, but now the praises cease for a moment because God is about to transact some very important business. Uh, look, if you will, at chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him, this is the Father sitting on the throne, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or you could translate it a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. The chapter opens with the Apostle John weeping because no one is able, supposedly, to open up this seven-seal scroll. And so the question is asked in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And as we've studied, John's first century audience would have understood the significance of a seven-sealed scroll. It was in the first century what we would call a last will and testament or a title deed. And so the Father has securely held in His hand the title deed to the earth. If you remember, Adam had been given dominion over the earth to rule and to reign. But he lost that dominion when he rebelled against God and yielded to the temptation of the evil one. And so Satan is now called with a small g, the God of this world. And so in Luke 4, Matthew 4, where the temptation of Christ is given, it's a very legitimate offer that Satan makes because Adam, in essence, had lost the farm. Bow down and worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus, of course, refuses because he came to die for us. He was not going to thwart the will of God in his life. And at his redeeming sacrifice there on Golgotha, he not only redeems man, he redeems the creation. Paul in Romans 8 describes all of the creation moaning and groaning, as magnificent as it is, though the heavens are declaring the glory of God, they don't even begin to declare the glory of God the way they originally did. 
And so Christ takes this seven-seal scroll, and he is going to enact a series of judgments that will allow him to rule and reign as God intended. In chapters 6 through 19 are what we call the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. And so it's so intense that if you will notice chapter 6 and verse 16, the people will say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And so this sixth chapter is a shock to the senses. In chapters 4 and 5, we've been in a place of praise and shouting. When you come into chapter 6, you are in a place of pain and suffering. In chapters 4 and 5, we're we're experienced with the saints there, the heavenly joys. There's great scenes of joy there in the heavenly places. But when you come into chapter 6, you come into a place of judgment. Now, if you understand the structure of Revelation chapters 6 through 19, the book of Revelation will begin to make sense to you. And we've already noted that the seal judgments happen first. STB, not STS. Search the scriptures. STB, right? Seal judgment, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. The trumpet judgments can't happen until the seal judgments happen. The seal judgments happen, followed by the trumpet judgments, followed by the bowl judgments. They happen consecutively in consecutive order. But what's interesting is when you come to the introduction of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 and verse 15, this verse out of the Messiah, uh, or the Messiah quotes it, it's out of the Bible, we read, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And you would think that the book should end there and the second coming should just happen. But it is a significant statement in the midst of this parenthesis because when the seventh trumpet is sounded, seven bold judgments will follow that will bring about the second coming of Christ. And there is an intensity that begins to build through the trumpet and the bold judgments. For instance, in the sealed judgments, we saw one-fourth of the earth affected. For instance, in the fourth seal. But when we come, for instance, to the third trumpet, we see one-third of the world affected. And so there's an intensity that's growing, just as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, like with a woman who is in labor. Now that's the backdrop for today's message. I'm calling it, When Heaven Goes Silent. If you're taking notes, the very first thing I want you to see is the unusual experience of this silence. The unusual experience of this silence. We read now in verse 1, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is such an incredible contrast uh, from what we have just heard. In chapters 4 through 7, we saw heaven filled with praise. We saw the raptured saints, the angels of heaven, the tribulation saints. Remember, there are three kinds of saints in the Bible that we've already highlighted for you. There's Old Testament saints, believers in the Old Testament. There are church saints, and there's a third category called tribulation saints. And of course, they're all in heaven. They're praising the Lord. They're giving Him honor. But then when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Maybe perhaps the longest pause of silence ever in heaven's history. It's as if heaven is holding its breath, and in awe, there's absolute silence. I remember years ago, 
a, tr- a, a case, a trial in our nation that had captured the country's attention for 18 months. And the verdict was going to come. And I was in a restaurant with some of our staff at the time. And there was a TV in that restaurant. And I mean, the restaurant was dead silent. You could hear a pin drop. And people were holding their breath for that head juror to read the verdict. That's kind of the picture here. There was silence in heaven for half an hour. All of heaven is just holding its breath because of what is about to be announced. Now, by the way, this response of 30 minutes of silence shatters a commonly mis- uh, a common, commonly erroneous beliefs that people have that there's no time in heaven. The Bible is very clear. We've just read about half an hour or 30 minutes. If you're with us in the study of chapter 6, we saw all these tribulation saints who are beheaded for acknowledging Jesus as Lord. They're in heaven, and they know what's happening to people upon the earth. And so they ask a question in Revelation 6.10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? To which God says in Revelation 6.11, For a little while longer. Or you could render it or paraphrase it, For a little time yet. Well, you can't have, uh, you can't wait if there's no such thing as time. But people sometimes have said, but doesn't the Bible say, and time shall be no more? No, it really doesn't. Now, a famous hymn says that, and it's a great hymn, uh, but there's one little, I think, point of error in his theology. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. And the hymn writer probably was reading the old King James, Revelation 10 and verse 6, if you're interested, where at the end of that verse, it says, there should be time no longer. But if you read it carefully in the old King James, and you read it contextually in the King James, then like the new King James and like the new American standard, it renders it, there will be delay no longer. In other words, in that context, he's talking about nothing is going to stop, nothing is going to delay the judgment of God, no amount of time, and in the next verse, he begins to enact that that judgment. So there is time in heaven. Now, Buddhists and Hindus believe that there's an absence of time and eternity, but the Bible is distinctly different. Uh, if you remember when you come to the end of the book, the 22nd chapter, the tree of life that was all the way back there in the Garden of Eden, we will see it in the New Jerusalem. We will eat from it. And of course, uh, the scripture says there that every month there is fruit that the tree of life produces. So beyond minutes, 30 minutes, beyond the keeping of days and weeks, there's also months in heaven. Now, sometimes people will say, but doesn't the Bible say that there will be no moon or sun in heaven, and therefore without a sun or a moon, how can you have months? Well, it doesn't actually say that. It says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, but it also says there's a place that we call the New Jerusalem. If you die this morning and you go to heaven, you will go to a place, and I gave you a number of names by which it is called, the Father's house, heaven, the new Jerusalem. You will go to a place where Revelation 21, 23 says, and the city 
has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This speaks of the Father's house, of the new Jerusalem, that is distinct from the coming new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create. In the new Jerusalem, there is no need for the sun to shine because the glory of Jesus shines it. We don't need the outside light to illumine this auditorium. I was in here late last night, and I came in, and it was pitch black, and I couldn't see a thing. Um, But if I turn on the lights, I would be able to see everything. Well, in heaven, there will be no need for any kind of natural light or even artificial light because the glory of the Lamb will light it. But remember, the New Jerusalem is just the city, the capital city, as we will study at the end of the book, of a new earth. Now, there are some people who are amillennialists, and they describe heaven, and they've written some books on heaven, and they think God's just going to kind of fix up the current earth. Well, He will during the millennial reign, but since they deny the millennial reign of Christ, that He will literally rule, they think we're just going to have someday a fixed-up earth that we'll live on. Listen, God is going to take the new Jerusalem, he will take the current heavens and earth, he will destroy them with fire, and the new Jerusalem will come literally physically and sit on a new earth. And when you study the new earth, you discover that there are seasons and harvests, which uh, I assume will require a sun and so forth. So, um, I say all that to say that there's time in heaven. I mean, we've already seen music in heaven, right? Does not music, Matt, require tempo? You know, I had five years of piano. Oh, my. Me and my brother, we drove dear Mr. Roland nuts. He came out one night, and it was all upset when my brother said, you broke my divan. I went home, and I said, Mom, what's a divan? Mr. Roland said... Kevin broke it. <laughs> I said, well, that dear man, he used to take this little ticker, this metro, metronome, and he'd click it, and he'd go back and forth and back and forth. And I said, Mr. Roland, could you turn that thing off? It throws me off. It really messes me up. It wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to help me. But listen, in heaven, there is time. And there's time now. And by the way, if you've not received Jesus as your Savior... The time someday will run out, either by death or by rapture. And then your time will turn into an eternity of time, forever and ever and ever, in a place of judgment that God does not wish you to go. Again, verse 1, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this would be a good time to note that since there is about a half an hour of silence in heaven... By implication, that tells us we don't sing constantly in heaven. We're going to discover as we work through Revelation that there's many things that we are going to do in heaven. Among things, we will work. Our God is a working God. Every once in a while, you'll hear some uninformed Christians say that work was a result of the fall. It was a curse. No, it was not. God was working before the fall. Adam was working before the fall. Work was not a part of the curse, and you who are made in the image and likeness of God will work in heaven. What was a part of the curse was the nature of work changed. Now it comes by the sweat of our brow. So we're told here, in essence, there's going to be 30 minutes of silence, and so all of heaven is pondering. They're listening. They're waiting with bated breath. When we get to this passage in Revelation 8, we see an amazing contrast to what we've witnessed in the previous chapters. 
We go from a time of thunder and the sound of living creatures giving acclamation around the throne of God to a time of absolute silence. And that's where we'll pick up tomorrow in our ongoing study of the Revelation. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV21. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of people like you. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at When Heaven Goes Silent as we search the Scriptures.